Welcome to the University of Texas Press Podcast. My name is Leila Oxio, and with us today is Brooklyn-based artist Nina Kachadorian. An interdisciplinary artist and associate professor at New York University's Gallatin School, Nina Kachadorian's diverse body of work spans the mediums of video, performance, sound, sculpture, photography, and public projects. Humorously unearthing and engaging the creative potential that lurks within the mundane, Kachadorian invites viewers to take notice of the world around them while working under strict limitations and with boundless creativity. Known for projects such as sorted books, seat assignment, and lavatory self-portraits in the Flemish style, Kachadorian's work is featured in the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Margulies Collection, and Saatchi Gallery. Kachadorian's work is currently on exhibit at the Blanton Museum of Art in Austin under the title Nina Kachadorian, Curiouser. The exhibit will remain open until mid-June, after which it will be traveling first to the Iris B. Gerald Cantor Center for Visual Arts at Stanford University, then to the Institute for Contemporary Art at Virginia Commonwealth University. The catalog for the exhibit, also titled Nina Kachadorian Curiouser, is the first major monograph on Kachadorian's work and is out now via the Blanton Museum of Art and UT Press. Well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Well, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, sure. Can you start off by telling us a bit about working with the Blanton on your exhibit and how that came together and the process of getting Curiouser together? Sure. Um, Veronica Roberts, the curator at the Blanton, approached me years ago about this show. And um, and I was very happy when she came to the Blanton that she was um, allowed to encourage to take this show with her. Um, sometimes when a curator changes jobs, a show ends up dead in the water, but luckily not for me. So um, that was very exciting. And we, we plunged in and um, it has really been years and years of conversation. And I think one reason why um, putting together the show has been such a pleasure is that we've really come to know each other well through this process. She's come to know my work like so, so well that, um, it almost got comical by the end. There were sort of leaps of logic she was making that, I mean, I started teasing her about the way she began thinking about things because they were such, uh, reflections of the way that sometimes, you know, <laughs> I think about things. And so we had a great rapport. We had an absolutely great rapport. And, um, and, uh, the book too, you know, we were sort of on, on the same page about wanting to make a catalog that didn't sort of do the usual thing. And the usual thing is you sort of get a couple people to write long, very serious academic essays, and then you kind of throw a bunch of pictures into the book and um, make it as fat as possible, and that's that. And and instead, we thought, you know, we really want to work with writers, and, and quite a lot of them, and it might be interesting to to try to sort of have a few longer pieces of writing, but to give people pretty specific tasks. So Veronica wrote herself um, the first long piece on seat assignment that anybody has ever um, written so far. This is sort of the first really in-depth look at that project because it's really the first first in-depth look, um, the first in-depth showing of that project. Um, and then we decided to try... Um, Oh, and I should also say Jeffrey Kastner wrote a sort of overview of my work. He's someone I've known for a very long time. He's seen a lot of it. Um, and then I did an interview with my dear friend and uh, a curator I've also worked with many times named Stuart Harodner. So with all three of them, I feel like I had a, a nice 
situation of someone who who knew me and knew what I was doing and has known it for a while. And then we did um, a new thing, which is that we decided to invent what we call the capsule essay, which would be a very short piece where we would assign um, or sort of matchmake a writer with just one artwork. Um, sometimes we let people choose. Sometimes we made a suggestion and kind of matched people up. But what we wanted from that was a close-up look that would let them sort of just address one thing. I'm an artist who really makes a lot of very different things. And I think that's sometimes the challenge of asking someone to write overarchingly about what I make. But it seemed like a really kind of fun assignment, we hoped, to say to the person, just think about this one thing. And then for those capsule essays, I wrote short introductions that are often sort of stories about how this thing came to be in the first place and what my ideas were and sometimes kind of stories anecdotally, really, uh, you know, why, how did this thing get here? So. All of this, as maybe you can read between the lines, involved um, really, really close working together, playing with it together, you know, kind of tossing it around. I think the catalog really took up sort of intensively about a year's worth of work. And the, the most sort of past year was really spent a lot on that. Um, and then really thinking about what we wanted the show to look like. And that's not also so obvious when you have a lot of really different kinds of things you're trying to get into one space. Yeah, and um, you can really tell in the book also that it's sort of a labor of love, and it works so well with um, sort of the feeling of your work, too. Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, one of the best reviews I've had of this book so far, I, I just wish I could blurb him. I should maybe ask him to blurb me online somewhere, is is my friend's um, uh, nine-year-old who, like, is so obsessed with the catalog, he's kind of almost, like, memorized it. And and my friend had to buy herself her own copy because Ruben would just not, like, let her, his, her copy go. And and that just that just makes me so unbelievably happy. Like, he he knows the names of works and he he's, he's seen the show now, but it, he didn't, he didn't for the first maybe month or two that it was up. Um, he just had the book. So, yeah. So I'm happy if it can engage uh, an adult as well as a child, an art catalog. I think that there's, there's hopefully something slightly different going on. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, focusing on the installation process um, for the exhibit, which sort of in a way can be seen as forging connections in a conversation sort of across a body of work, which are things that um, are highlighted and threads that are seen in your individual pieces as well. Um, did you find anything out um, about the dialogue that's present within your own body of work that you might not have noticed before? Sure. I think every time one has the privilege of putting up a show this big, and this is only the second time in my career I've ever gotten to do that. This is even bigger than the, the survey show I had 11 years ago. So, you know, there are even more things kind of gathered together at the Blanton. But, you know, you kind of step back and you, you sort of have a chance to be like, you know, what have I been doing all this time? And, and I think there's a bit of anxiety that you might see things you're not happy to see. Like you might sort of think, oh, God, I'm, you know, always doing that thing or this thing. And um, I mean, I, I have to say it's been a... Um, it's been a really good experience for me at this point in time to see this show. I, I think that one thing Veronica did really intelligently um, was to sequence things in ways that help people make connections easily themselves. So, you know, it's not that we've had to kind of, I hope, you know, overload things with wall text to kind of again and again make the point about this or that or the other thing. But you can sort of flow from one piece into the next and think, oh, accent elimination. She's worked with her family. Aha, genealogy of the supermarket. She's thought about family in this other way. And, you know, there are, there are sort of, um, 
mended spiderweb pieces at the beginning, but then the red thread there you, in use to fix a spiderweb might remind you of the things in the very last gallery with paranormal postcards. And so I think we've tried to kind of allow themes to occur, but also reoccur. So you're not kind of bombarded with the same thing all at once. And then you have to move on to like another big theme, but these things are kind of, they come and they go. And in the end, they've all sort of, um, been in conversation with one another. I hope that's what we've managed to do. Um, it's been very helpful for me to have a space that could be divided up into, into different spaces because one thing I really like to do, and I think it works really well in this show, is to have a viewer walk into the next room and be like, whoa, this looks totally different. Where am I now? And to have a couple of rather sort of um, abrupt changes of scenery. So um, I do sort of feel happy about the fact that that happens um, in the show too. So yeah, I mean, what I've been hearing from people who have gone, um, I think they, they do end up thinking a lot about this language theme and the sort of processes of sorting things and collecting things and kind of taxonomies and the way that I'm often doing that in my process of making something. Um, I'm very, very happy that the last part of the show includes um, one of my most recent works called The Recarcassing Ceremony, which is this film that took me about a year to make, although I've been trying to make it, honestly, for over 25 years. And it's it's just such a personal story. It's taken a really long time for me to figure out how to do it. But um, I am so happy Veronica agreed to include it in the show. It she She actually did something, I think, incredibly trusting and brave, which was to actually put it on the checklist before she had ever even seen it, because I wasn't done making it yet when we had to make that decision. But, you know, I told her, I have a feeling this is going to end up being a piece that feels really important to me. And I, I would really, really love it if we could just kind of both make the leap and decide that it will be in the show. And I'm so, so glad that was possible. So... No, that's, um, well, sort of going off the recarcassing ceremony, then um, the sort of curiosity and interventionist play that is always present within your work is sort of their characteristics that we often mostly associate with childhood. And um, in your artist talk as well, we could see that it was also something that was definitely nurtured, you know, throughout your um, childhood and, and your family specifically. Um, but can you talk a bit about the role of that throughout your life and have you ever struggled to maintain that or is it just a constant? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're speaking to me. I'm not going to like bend your ear on this one, but you're speaking to me during a week where there have been like a particular giant pile of annoying grown-up problems to deal with, you know, everything from like troublesome stuff going on at my teaching job to, you know, annoying repairs happening at my house to like a giant studio cleanup. I mean, it's just like, I, I, I yeah, this week I'm, I'm living like a grown-up sort of, you know, big time. But I think, I think that, you know, play, play, yes, play is something children do without second guessing it. And mm -hmm. I think when we get older, we second guess our play, we sort of learn to think about um, what's work, what's play, what's the difference between the two? When are you sort of wasting time? When are you doing research, which sounds very serious. But I would argue that, you know, the imagination has to be allowed some space to do its work. And so play is you know, it doesn't have to mean being goofy. It doesn't have to mean being being sort of la la la, like, you know, frivolous. And I know you heard me on my uh, sort of pedestal, um, what's it called, soapbox, I mean to say, on the at the talk, sort of talking about um, how much I'm, I'm happy to have humor be part of my work, but how, how um, 
you know, funny and frivolous are not the same thing. And, and I think play is sort of similar. Like you have to give it space. You have to allow, um, you have to take an attitude towards experimentation that is, um, generous and open-ended and where you're not going to foreclose possibilities. And yeah, I mean, I try as much as I can to always let that happen. It's not that I'm perfect at it in any way. There are definitely moments where I sort of feel discouraged and I just want to, you know, drop an idea or talk myself out of it or do something else. And, um, and not all ideas or play lead to interesting, interesting results. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that you have to at least give them a chance. So, um, so you have to sort of play with a loose grip and at the same time do it with, with commitment. So you don't rule things out and you don't shut things down too soon. And at the same time, you don't dismiss what you're doing as like just some, and here comes my other hated word, like whimsical thing. So it's not lightweight. It's actually, it has to be done lightly, but it is an important and serious thing, if that makes sense. It definitely does. Um, and speaking of that dreaded word, whimsical, one thing that came <laughs> up uh, during your artist talk again was sort of, you know, again, how something uh, just because it's humorous doesn't mean it's not serious um, and curiosity and rigor over, you know, whimsical and quirky. And we got right. to briefly touch upon sort of um, the gendered implications of those words um and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind opening that up a little bit sure. and how you feel about those words and if that response to your work like how do you navigate responses like that yeah I I you know I I just had my antenna tuned for years to try to figure out whether that word is gendered I try to notice who's who's getting called whimsical who's getting called quirky when where do those adjectives get applied um, I had an interesting conversation yesterday I, I had a, a wonderful graduate student who defended her thesis and um, for her she used the word whimsical twice in her thesis and I found myself saying, hey, Rachel, you know, <laughs> you know, this word is like on my absolute most hated list. And it's really interesting you chose to use it. And she actually knows how I feel about that word. And she said, I knew you were going to ask me about that. And we talked about it. And for her, the word that really, you know, sort of has this effect is the word magical. And so, you know, I think, I think that words we all maybe find a set of words where we're kind of like yes to this and no to that. And the reason I'm sort of sensitive about whimsical is because I feel like it's the dis at worst, I will say it's the kind of dismissive, um, dismissive side or tonality to it, where it's kind of like, oh, it's just this thing that happens. And then la la la, you go on your merry way. There's none of that sort of follow through that I was saying is so important. So I like words like imaginative. I like words like um, inventive or, or odd or, you know, even like eccentric, eclectic. I, there, there are words that um, I think because whimsical has become such a marketing term too, I have a sort of allergy to it. It just, that and quirky just seem to show up in, in context where someone's trying to sell me something. And I just don't, I don't like that valence that it has right now for me. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. You think about a lot of male artists who work with, who are known for being humorous. I mean, Maurizio Catalan is someone who maybe comes to mind and I wonder how many times he's been called whimsical. It's kind of, you know, I just wonder, I don't have hard facts to present you with here, but, um, so I, you know, I, it's not at all about humor for me. I don't mind at all when people laugh at 
at things. And I, I, it's been a really, really fun couple weeks getting weekly pictures from Veronica of people standing with headphones on and watching those Flemish laboratory music videos because I can see that people are cracking up and um, that's fine. They, they, they can and they should. And then I hope at the same time that there's something more to it than just sort of a, a, a strange act in an airplane bathroom. And, um, <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing about seed assignment and, and the reason it's so satisfying to be able to show so much of it at the Blanton is that I feel for the first time, really, I've been able to show people the, the wide, wide range and breadth of what happens in that project. It's not just dressing up in the bathroom. It's a lot of other things. And some are, I think, sort of quite anxious images, images that recall, you know, terrorism or airplane accidents or other kinds of things I worry about on planes. So yeah, I want there to be a range. It's, it's uh, maybe one thing that makes me the happiest when um, a friend uh, friends recently who have seen the recarcassing ceremony really said, um, you know, I, I laughed, I cried. And that's great. I, I think those two things can happen within one artwork. And I hope those two things can happen within one show. Yeah. Um, and, speak, and speaking of sort of people's reactions in museums, um, one thing that I noticed, and I think we talked about this again in um, your artist talk, but um, sort of while creating your pieces and in the exhibition of them, there is sort of a shift in the um, sort of expected uses of and the purpose of space through a transformation or a change in behavior. We don't think of museums as spaces for yeah. laughter, and we don't think of planes as places for creative work. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and so I was wondering about the relationship of your work to physical space, sort of the limitations, the impositions, and the role of humor within that. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, it's a really, really good way of framing it. And I think we could even maybe include what happens outside the museum when you hear, please, please, please to meet you in the trees outside the Blanton. Mm -hmm. And you hear these, you know, weird voices. Are they bird? What are, who is that? You know, is that a, it's sort of bird-like, but it sort of seems human. And, you know, I, I really like situations where, yeah, I guess, you know, to put it in very sort of um, very basic terms where something unexpected happens to you, but where you have to kind of evaluate and 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 kind of think again about what it is that's happening to you. So um, I, I said in my talk, and I think it's maybe a good place here to reiterate how interested I often am in, in moments of deep confusion and misunderstanding, where you sort of think like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is going on? And And although those can sometimes be frustrating or even scary experiences, I think they can also open up a kind of imaginative very, very um, blown wide open type of thinking that we have to kind of suspend what we know and reconsider what we know or why we think we know it and, and sort of find our way back to something that sometimes has shifted through the process of doing that. I, that sounds all a little bit, you know, meta and abstract, but um, I think for me, some of my most um, memorable experiences in life and perhaps also even in museums have been those ones where I just think like, I, I cannot quite figure out what it is I'm thinking or seeing or feeling right now. And it, it just feels like there, it's like, it's like taking a decongestant. I don't know. It's like when you have a really bad, you know, cold and suddenly you're like, oh, I can breathe again. Like there's room here. So yeah. Um, well, talking about seat assignment again, um, has that changed your relationship to flying or even just packing for a trip at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll, <laughs> yes. 
Um, I bought myself for the first time in my life, actually, a really, really good travel suitcase about a year ago. <laughs> I decided I really finally deserved to splurge on a little suitcase that was sort of the little suitcase of my dreams. I've been I've been traveling with kind of hand-me-down, you know, travel luggage for a really long time. And I hate throwing things out that aren't broken and I, I kind of whatever. I'm a little bit I'm trying to be sort of mindful that way. So I found someone to take the old suitcase and therefore I felt I could buy myself a new one. And I love this suitcase. It has, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a beautiful shape. It's a beautiful color. It has little compartments inside it that you can pack in all these excellent ways that keep it from getting messy. And it's got really good wheels. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, I say this kind of, sure, it's connected to travel, but it, it's not so far away from, for me, the pleasures also of arranging something like paranormal postcards. It's about sort of how can you fit a certain amount of things into a constrained space? You know, how can you take just the bare minimum of what you need on a trip? And um, I always feel like I give myself a kind of little, uh, like, post-mortem when I come back from a trip, when I unpack the suitcase and I'm like, okay, what did I wear? What did I not use? What's the ratio of those two things? You know, do I feel like I had enough choices about what I wanted to wear or was I stuck with too few things? Cause you get minus points for that too, you know, but you have to have sort of, I mean, I, I, I pride myself on packing and traveling really light, but part of it is that packing is like a game. I mean, we're sort of back to that theme. Packing is like a game and it's, it's a game that I've been playing ever since I was a kid because of these family summers far away. And I can tell you a story about like probably around age seven or eight, my parents gave each my brother and I, a, uh, each of us a, um, a little backpack of our own. Mine was fluorescent orange and his was fluorescent yellow, which meant that they could also find us in an airport <laughs> when we went running off. And I, we were allowed to put anything we wanted in those bags, but we had to carry them. So my brothers became full of like pointy, heavy little metal airplanes and cars. And he had this like backpack that rattled around and, you know, there were little like sharp edges jutting out of, you know, the sides of it. My backpack was filled with stuffed animals and they were arranged in a very, very, um, it was like arranging them in the bag was, was like a whole puzzle that I spent a long time solving. So there was a long chipmunk that fit perfectly across the bottom of it. And then various sort of bears and um, you know, rabbits, there was a lamb and, but they all had to be sort of fit like a puzzle in there. Like there was something about packing the bag itself that, you know, even then was a kind of game that I really loved. So, um, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of things, I guess, mixed up in that answer, but, um, but I think space, yeah. I mean, I, I really like your question about how you can kind of shift what people expect in a space. And I, 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 I hope that happens in a few places in the show. I think maybe the most profoundly um, spatially unsettling or odd or unexpected room is probably indecision on the moon where you're asked to walk into a pitch black space and, um, and, you know, listen to a soundtrack. And I wonder how often people cheat and take their phone out and use the flashlight. I've been wondering that for a while, but you know, I can't do anything about it. I hope people are just going to play by my rules in there and, and not ruin the experience for themselves. But yeah, no, yeah. I saw a lot of people um, holding on to each other, which was also a nice thing <laughs> to see. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Now and then when that show has been up, maybe I shouldn't say this, I shouldn't make this. No, nah, it's a nice suggestion to make. But now and then when that piece has been up in shows, it kind of becomes like the makeout room. So there have been some, some kind of sweet little romantic moments in the in, in on the moon, we could say, on the moon. Oh. <laughs> yeah, cute, right? Um, well, still on seat assignment, um, I find this really interesting. You've said that you haven't had many 
in-flight reactions or responses to what you were doing. Um, is that the case or is there, are there any examples of someone, you know, getting curious and asking you what you're up to? Well, so I think, I think by now, because there've been a few trips since the Blanton now too, I think I'm up to flight 210. So let's oh, say wow. maybe, maybe rounding up a little bit, but I think uh, on those flights, there have been only three total strangers who have asked me what I was doing or sort of made conversation in one or another way that indicated they've been watching me do something. And then there has been one kind of exceptional case, which was, um, two years ago, really almost to the, to the week, um, because I was on my way to Venice for the Venice Biennial. I had some work in the show last time and I was incredibly sick when I got on the plane. I had a horrible, horrible chest cold. I had been running a fever. It was just awful. And I sat down and thought, you know, oh, please let this be the flight where I can just sleep the whole way and try to arrive rested and able to get my work done. And um, it happened to also be the one of the last flights out of New York um, before the opening. And so it was like an art world school bus. It was ridiculous. There were like, you know, so many people at the gate who I recognized or knew or, and, um, so it wasn't perhaps too surprising when the woman who ended up sitting next to me, um, got her stuff in order and took her seat and she turned to me and then she said, you know, sorry if this is embarrassing, but are you Nina Cachadorian? <laughs> I had never had this happen and never had this happen on a plane. And I looked at her probably a little bit horrified and said, how did you know that? And she said, well, I do PR for museums and we had, I worked for a museum that had some of your work up and I recognize you from your self-portraits done in the airplane bathroom. And I thought, oh my God. Okay. Well, on one hand, I guess I'm not going to necessarily be able to just shut you know, shut down and go to sleep, um, from this friendly person. But on the other hand, I have an opportunity, which is that I've always said I would collaborate with the person next to me at some point, And I've never quite known how to pop the question, but she basically just popped the question without realizing it. So I said, would you be into making some stuff with me on this flight? And she was all over that. So we had a hilarious time and we she was so brazen. She was so undaunted. And I mean, people think I'm bold, but I'm telling you, she was <laughs> She was something else. She, she, you know, we took our socks off. We made puppets with them. We used the tray table as a kind of like puppet stage. We, we made this whole strange movie about her throwing her bread roll at me. I mean, there was like stuff flying through the air and we, we just worked, we dressed up, we worked and worked and worked. And, um, I, she had very nicely manicured fingernails with an amazing fingernail polish color that I used in a bunch of magazine pictures with her fingers showing. And, yeah. So, you know, it was a great breaking of the ice on that idea. It's something I'd like to do again. And I haven't since that flight. So I, I'm still sort of trying to figure out what it means to work with someone who doesn't allow me an entree at all. Um, but that's it. And people, I think, you know, they, they either don't notice what I'm doing or they don't want to know because it looks weird mm -hmm. or something. Or they, it's just the culture of travel these days that I think we sit down and we don't engage with the person next to us. It's sort of a a sense of privacy or of wanting to just be in our own space that we've paid for. <laughs> We're going to just kind of, you know, do that. When was the last time you talked to someone on a plane? I mean, yeah. I feel like it never happens. No, no, right? it really happens. And it's the same thing sort of on the subway or the bus too. You know, you just, you look down and you go where you're going and that's sort of right. how it is. Right. Um, but speaking of that collaboration, though, um, one thing that was great about Seed Assignment is it received a great reaction online um, with so many people sort of responding with their own images um, inspired by it. And can, I was wondering if... Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
it just keeps on happening. There was yeah. another one this week, a really nice one. Um, people, yes, I mean, it has had a lively life online, that project. And um, one of the really nice side effects of that has been that a lot of total strangers have gone and done this themselves and then sent me their results via my website. I get these hilarious emails. And so, you know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's really wonderful when that happens. There have even been... Um, two, not one, but two instances of someone deciding to make a painting based on one of my photographs, which of course, in some sense are based on paintings. And then they've sent these paintings to me. So I have a beautiful little oil that was done by a guy named Tom Mason. And that one is actually reproduced in the book. Um, and then there's one in my office at school, which is a bit, it's like a two by three foot painting that this very nice guy from Wisconsin sent me. I feel terrible right now. I'm not remembering his name, but he, um, he just, he said, I made this and would you like it? And it's like, Oh my God, thank you. Yes. So it's there. It amuses my students <laughs> a lot. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, with that project in particular, I have to say that I've been sort of amazed by the generosity somehow back to me that it's generated. Um, and I, I don't know, it's just really nice. People want to play along. It's sort of how it feels. They want to sort of join the, you know, ranks of this strange historical ish imagery that they see, um, and, and realize how with a few efficient moves, you can kind of turn yourself into someone else. And so, yeah, I, I've been really happy about that. There are a couple of projects that people really like to participate in, and that's certainly one. And the other big one is Sorted Books, which, um, you know, the last, the last, last, last room in the show at the Blanton is that wonderful room that I, I was so thrilled the education folks there came up with, which allow you to sort of try it yourself and then take a picture, which really ends up looking like one of my printed photos. It was such a wonderful idea. Yeah, and it also makes it very hard to leave the uh, <laughs> show. You just... Well, you know, when I was installing in the room next door, I had to keep telling people, like, don't let me go in there because I can't keep my hands off of it. It's like, it's just too tempting to start, um, you know, so, yeah. Um, but that interaction and dialogue... Um, it's something that, you know, through these projects you have with your audience and in a lot of work you have with just your surrounding environment and nature as well, especially with the spider webs and the mushrooms, um, even though that's a bit of a, as you've said, a strong armed collaboration. Yes, um, yes it is. But then um, they are in turn yeah, allowed to sort of interact back, you know, with the spiders sort of claiming their web again um, and just sort of the natural processes. So. Can you talk a bit about sort of that ongoing dialogue in some of your pieces as well? Where, where there's a sort of a presence or character or person or animal that kind of talks back, yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's happened in a lot of works. And in fact, many, many works that aren't in the show have engaged that kind of, um, that kind of, yeah, like handing over some agency, but then sometimes also kind of like taking it back, a kind of rivalry. I, I often talk about mended spiderwebs as kind of sibling rivalry, but um, there's an essay in the book uh, written by a, a historian of science named Laurel Braitman, and she writes about a project called Animal Cross-Dressing. And, mm -hmm. um, and that project was a, a strange kind of dress-up uh, activity, which was inspired by actually something that was quite upsetting and unsettling, and that was... Um, spending time at a zoo in, in, um, in Trinidad, where I was for a residency many, many years ago. And the zoo, which um, was, you know, a very kind of casual, hands-on, uh, pretty low-budget zoo, and, and where it was so interesting just thinking about sort of cultural differences, how um, the, the, the 
people who visited the zoo, the kids who came on field trips and things, they were allowed a kind of access to all aspects of what it means to have a zoo in a way that I feel like American school children never would be. And the most glaring example of that was the day that the very cheerful zookeeper who had, I'd gotten to be friends with, the guy who took care of the snakes, brought a big group of school kids over to this kind of like, I thought of it as like the, the shed of death where they raised all of the prey animals, they feed the snakes. So you would open this door and it was just like mice and guinea pigs and rabbits and you know rats and all of them like faded to become dinner um, for the snakes snakes. And um, he took out a guinea pig and all the kids petted the guinea pig and then they fed it to a snake. And it was just a sort of absolutely unapologetic, you know, this is what happens kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, if, certainly a few people were like, oh, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't like the freak out that I think would happen here. And and that was very interesting to me. It got me thinking about my own sentimentality about that moment of sort of sort of some part of me feeling like it's wrong, it's not fair. And that's absurd because this is what snakes do. They eat, you know, rodents smaller than them. And um, who was I to fault a snake for doing sort of the thing it does and it's part of the food chain? So I really tried to kind of think about my emotional reaction. And, um, you know, especially after the day that I saw the anaconda eat the rabbit, which was the biggest snake I've ever seen eat the biggest you know, prey animal I've ever seen a snake eat. Um, and I had this idea, which again, maybe this is back to the play theme that we started with of, you know, maybe I could make an outfit and it would make an animal look like a snake and then it could just kind of tiptoe on by, like, you know, a, a absurd thought, but, but, you know, okay, so why not pursue it? So, okay, all right, I'll make an outfit that a rat can wear and it'll turn the rat into a snake. And I was going into all these amazing stores in Trinidad where they sell fabrics that people make carnival costumes out of. And I found this amazing stretchy snakeskin lycra. I made the snake outfit. And then I thought, you know, if I'm doing it to the snake, it sort of feels symmetrical in some way that's important here to kind of also do it to, um, sorry, if I'm doing it to the rat, I should also do it to the snake. So I built two, I made two costumes. Um, tried to do the shoot at the zoo, total failure. People were watching me. It was, it was ridiculous and I couldn't concentrate. It was just too much pressure and this uh, disastrous. So, um, I restaged it when I got back to New York under much more controlled circumstances in my studio. And I worked with a pet snake that belonged to one person and on a different day, a pet rat that belonged to another person. And we, with the owners of these two animals, um, dressed them up and got these pictures taken. It was very easy with the snake. It was very hard with the rat. <laughs> so um, that's a long story. But but yeah, I, I think sort of the strangeness of that. And, and again, you know, sometimes you don't realize really what you're doing until you're in the middle of moving through a process. And certainly with this piece, um, when I saw the documentation later, some of the strangest footage was the moment where we were unzipping the giant rat outfit and taking the snake out of it, which looked like we were pulling the guts out of a giant rat that had eaten a snake. It was like the whole thing had reversed itself and prey became predator, became prey. I mean, it's like this weird looping system. So, um, I think back to play once more, but you know, my motto besides besides sort of being willing to try anything, I guess, that seems like it might be interesting, you have to also document everything copiously. You have to give yourself as many options with your documentation as possible because you really actually never know what you're going to find. So I shot video, I shot photo, I mean, I shot footage in every way, shape and form of that, of that strange um, cross-dressing photo shoot. Um, 
Uh, well, I do have um, a couple more uh, questions about specific sure. works. Um, one of which is the genealogy of the supermarket. Um, and I was just wondering, while making those couple couplings and the family pairings, um, yeah. were you know were there any stories involved? How did you go about doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think as I might have remarked um, in the talk there at the Blanton, I it took me a really long time to go grocery shopping during that time when I was making <laughs> that piece because um, I just ha- would stop and look at every single label. And um, I remember, you know, sometimes people ask me like, "Where do your ideas come from?" And and often I can't sort of pinpoint a moment, but but with that one I can. And it was having. I was in in, uh, Eugene, Oregon many, many years ago. I had just given an artist talk and it was while I was getting into the car um, with my two hosts. And I think I had in that lecture I had just given showed um, a piece called Airplane Family Tree, where it was a a work like another genealogy chart of of airplanes that are related to other airplanes. And then they have airplane children and yeah, you know, one side of the family evolves to become blimps and other kinds of flying things. And there are all these sort of cousins that become very different from one another. But it was something about the family tree structure. And then um, some something we had also been talking about involving a brand name food product. And I, I just blurted out loud, I should make a family tree that involves, you know, that has all those people who appear on food products in one place. And um, it was funny. They didn't really have a reaction to that, which can often be a moment where you sort of are like, oh, maybe that was a really dumb idea. But I kind of thought, well, I'm going to sort of suspend suspend that and uh, just go ahead and do this anyway and, and begin working on it. So, yeah, I, I, um, I got very familiar with um, a lot of different grocery stores in this area. Um, it's become a tradition to add people every time I show the piece from the, the local area that I'm that the show is at. And so, you know, as you know, there are, I think five or six new, new Austin relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's sort of a tongue in cheekness to that piece for me that I'm happy it's next to accent elimination in the Blenton show because in curiouser, because, you know, like, I mean, I'm a first generation American, like a lot of these people, um, on this, on this chart are sort of so American in a, in a, a fantasy kind of American way that my family has never been. And I don't know that I, I am exactly even though I did grow up here. Um, so there, there's so many fantasies of lineage that you can kind of fit yourself into or, or see yourself in extreme contrast to. Um, and, but I will tell you something absolutely crazy that happened at the Blanton and this has never happened before. And that was at, um, at, um, one of the walkthroughs, I think a woman came up to me and said, I have to tell you, one of my relatives is in your family tree. And I said, are you kidding me? And she said, yeah, my family is for many generations back started this tomato sauce, tomato brand called Bella San Marzano. And the, the image of this lady on the label is, is not a specific relative. It's this kind of beautiful Italian woman holding a very ripe tomato and against a blue background. But so, so she said, but that's my family's brand. Like I am that family. And I just, it was such an amazing thing to think like, 
this fantasy just sort of came true. I mean, it what still hasn't happened and it, it could is that one of those actual people in a picture comes up to me. And, you know, I was kind of hoping for that in Austin because you guys have Stubbs and you've got Earl Campbell. And like, I thought maybe, 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 or, you know, Michaela and the Bees Lemonade, me and the Bees Lemonade, like they're all there somewhere in Texas. <laughs> but, uh, no luck, no luck, no luck, unfortunately. Yeah, we tried, we tried. Um, so yeah, th those are some stories. I, I've uh, recently noticed that the Brawny company has changed their packaging and they've sort of um, cut off the top half of the Brawny guy's head. So you oh, no. only see, and no, it's kind of disturbing. You only see his like smiling mouth and uh, brawny body, but he doesn't have eyes and, and, a hair, and hair anymore, which is weird. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I have him in his full form <laughs> in, on the chart. Definitely. Um, yeah. And speaking of that piece's neighbor, Accent Elimination, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about just that question, where are you from? Because it's not only sort of complex, especially to answer in usually the amount of time that you're expected to, um, but it's something that can be shifting and evolving. And um, the piece really highlights sort of the normally constructed understanding of identity that we have. And so how do you navigate that question when someone poses it to you? And did the process of working on that piece affect that in any way? Yeah. Um, well, when people ask me, so there's the question of where are you from and the question of where do you live, which mm -hmm. are sort of, you know, they're nested questions in a way. When people ask me where I'm from, I actually, even after 20 years in New York, I say I'm from California. Like I really, I really, really still identify as someone who grew up on the West Coast. I, I say I live in New York, you know, and actually I'm about to start spending um, about half my year in Berlin. So I, I don't know. I, the question is about to kind of shift again, I think, um, um, depending on how we like it there. <laughs> but um, but there's... Um, there's then sort of the other, where are you from? And, and in a way, this is my dad's, my dad's version of um, speaking to this question is the question when it comes in the form of, no, where are you really from? Which sort of means you have an accent, you look like you come from somewhere else, you don't sound American and you don't look American or you don't look like you're from here. So he's getting, you know, he gets that question often. And um, he tries to answer it with, I'm from California, but that doesn't fly with him. You know, a lot of people, they, they really ask you, are asking something else. So the question as it comes my way is more in the form of what kind of, like, what, where's, what's Cachadorian? What kind of name is that? And, and then we kind of get into the ethnicity questions. But I mean, anyone meeting me assumes I'm American. I look American. I sound American. So, um, my parents really, and this is what inspired the piece, like they've been answering that question of where are you from their entire life because the accent is the first marker of another place being sort of present in their history. And as it turns out, it's a lot of other places that are present in their histories. So um, a lot of people, it's, it's actually a piece I really love to show because a lot of people want to come up to me and tell me their family origin stories. And that's really, really fun to kind of get to hear about and um I think a lot of people who live in the U.S. who have accents really, <laughs> they come up to me smiling and going, oh, my God, I know exactly what your parents are talking about. So, yeah. And you've also, I mean, you've worked with your family quite a bit. What is that? Uh, what is that like? Well, I've worked with my parents several times and they're really good sports. They really, they're, they're on board. They play along. They're, they're incredibly nice, <laughs> easygoing people and, and very supportive and sort of you know, they're, they're great collaborators. Um, the, the recarcusing ceremony is really special to me in part because it's the first time I've ever worked with my brother. And, you know, we were such close playmates as kids and 
he is a very peripatetic person. He travels a lot. He's, he's got a career that takes him all over the world. He's very busy and, you know, does, he lives in Europe. And so, you know, our sort of chance to work on something together has been not so easy. Um, but I was really happy he agreed to be part of this piece. And, and it really was so, so many ways so personal, but, you know, we've really never talked about the game as adults and we've never talked about how the game ended. And I've never really gotten to sort of apologize to him for ending that special game. And he's never really gotten to sort of prove to me that actually it's okay. (laughs) So, so we went through all that and you see it all on camera. All of that was sort of very, um, weirdly, you know, we began talking about it for the first time while the video camera was recording it. So, um, so yeah, so my brother is a new participant and, um, I was very nervous about what he would think of the film. He, he really liked it, which I'm so happy about. Um, and I don't know, maybe there'll be more stuff in our future. We've never done something sort of as a whole family until that piece. So maybe we will again. I hope so. <laughs> um, well, as someone who has so many sort of ongoing um, series over long periods of time, it seems like you're constantly producing work. And I was wondering, do you have any sort of unproductive periods, whether it's um, working on new projects or with sort of ongoing projects that are waiting? Certainly. I mean, you know, keep in mind, like what you're seeing in the show there is only the work that I think is is good. So (laughs) there's a lot. I'm sitting here in my studio having weeded out a lot of stuff today. And I ripped up a lot of photographs. I mean, it's a funny day to be talking about this. I I destroyed a lot of art today and it feels great. Like there's a lot of stuff that was not wonderful and was not that interesting and it was time for it to go. So sure. I mean, you know, I don't, not everything I make is, is headed out of the park and not everything makes the cut at all. Um, and there are periods too, where I feel very sort of unsure about what to do next, or even when I'm busy, it's possible to also feel sort of disengaged. And that's sort of the worst feeling because I think feeling, being very busy, but being very engaged is my favorite feeling. Um, being, being sort of busy with things, but not feeling sort of settled or happy about the way they're going, but being kind of swamped, that's really, mm, that's not a good place to be. Or feeling a little bit like, I'm not sure what to kind of turn my attentions to, and I can't kind of figure out what to latch on to. Like that, that is a strange thing too. This summer ahead of me is the first time in years where there hasn't been, you know, this really huge deadline of this, of this, of the Curiouser show. And so there's a curious, curious kind of space that is sort of open for me for the first time to sort of think about things that have been in the back of my head for a long time. And I don't really know what I'm going to end up working on in terms of a brand new thing next. I think I'm going to be in a city that I'm getting to know and get biking around and Berlin in summer is really wonderful. So I think I'm sort of going to give myself a bit of a break, which is something I really rarely do. So um, I kind of feel like I've earned it a little bit this year. And now I'm sort of ready to take a breath and then come back in fall and put up Curiouser all over again at the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford. And it'll be off on its second stop on the tour. So, yeah. Um, And then sort of, I guess, to the other end of that, um, when you have sort of such ongoing projects, how how do you come to the end of a series? Um, When is it complete or are they all just sort of potentially on hold to be reanimated? Yeah, I'd say, you know, 
Sorted books, I feel like there are still many, many libraries I'd like to work in and many, many iterations of that activity I can imagine being interesting and yielding more. Um, so that one I kind of imagine will just go on and on. I mean, maybe it, maybe there'll be times when I don't make one for a couple of years. I mean, perhaps the pace of it kind of will ebb and flow. Um, and seed assignment too. I think there's still sort of more to be done there. Um, but now that I'm seven years into the project, you know, it, it also ebbs and flows. And it's not like every flight is sort of I think I'm allowing myself a little bit more like leeway with some flights are productive and it's okay if some flights aren't like that's fine actually right now. So there's a little more sort of looseness around that. Um, some flights I work furiously. There'll be like a new idea I'm really excited to pursue. And some flights I'm just, I just really need a nap, you know? So, um, so that's been happening as well. Um, and then, you know, I think, I can maybe answer your question a bit from within seat assignment. Um, the lavatory self-portraits took place essentially on one long flight. There was sort of one of those that planted the seed and then I made the rest of the series on one very long flight to New Zealand. And it is important to me for the logic of that project to be able to say I made them on one long flight. So that series was done because I realized it was best within the logic of that project to end it and say it's capped at this one flight. So sometimes I think I like to end things when there's that kind of a reason. It's like the work itself demands that the loop be now closed, right? <laughs> so I'll probably get to that point with seat assignment at some point. Maybe there'll be some last gesture where I sort of feel like, okay, that's the period at the end of the sentence, that's now done. Um, but I don't know what that is yet, so I'm just gonna keep on going. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I won't keep you. Thank you so much um, for Thank taking you. the time to do this and talking with us. Of course. I'm, I'm so grateful and feel so lucky to have the show at the Blanton. I'm, I'm so grateful to you guys. You've been amazing. So thanks for that. Yeah. And uh, good luck with your move. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Our partial move. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you.